you have your Bibles, would you take them and turn to Revelation chapters 21 and 22. If your Bible is like mine, it's the last page of the Bible. Just find the maps and go back one page and you'll be there. The text is also printed for you in the bulletin. You're welcome to follow along there, but if you do have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn to these chapters, Revelation 21 and 22. This is... Again, I'll say this is perhaps not a very expected thing to do in the month of December leading up to Christmas, and now here we are three days before Christmas, and we're not in the Gospels, in the Christmas story with the shepherds and the wise men, we're here in the book of Revelation. This is what we've been doing this December, is looking at four portraits of Jesus as shown to us in the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation is all about Jesus, as the entire Bible is, so it makes sense for us to go here. This is the fourth one. This is our fourth Sunday in December, and and so this will be our fourth and final portrait of Christ from the book of Revelation. And and we've looked at only four snapshots, but there's kind of been a logical progression that they have followed. If you remember, we looked at chapter 1, and we saw this picture of the glory of Christ in his person, that he is in himself infinitely glorious. And, And so we saw this snapshot of Christ reigning in heaven and walking among the churches on earth. Then in chapter 5, we saw a picture of Jesus who is the lion and the lamb, that he is our redeemer. He is the sovereign orchestrator and ruler of the universe as the lion of the tribe of Judah, but he's also a lamb who has been slain. He's our redeemer who humbled himself and came and, and lived a humble human life, going to the cross, giving himself for our sins. So, so we saw his glory. We saw that he is also our redeemer. And then last week in chapter 19... We saw this brief portrait of the wedding banquet of the Lamb and said, Jesus is not only our Redeemer, but he's also our pursuer. That he is not a God who waits for us to get our act together and to come to him, but he is a God who pursues us, who comes after us, who seeks us out. Jesus came to seek and to save those who are lost. And he is the groom who pursues his bride, purifies his bride, and presents his bride to himself spotless and without blame. And so that was chapter 19, was the marriage banquet of the Lamb. And so it makes sense now, the only thing that's left in chapters 21 and 22, is to see the description of the home that Jesus is preparing for his bride to live with him in. We could say it this way, the 19 was the wedding banquet, now they're getting ready to move in together, the groom and the bride. And so these chapters give us a description of where they're going to live, the new heavens and the new earth. And so we see, we're going to read... Chapter 21, verses 1 through 8, and then also chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. And it's our custom here, I'll ask if you're able, would you join me in standing for the reading of God's word? Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, 
I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And chapter 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, this is your word, and we do not presume to come to it in our own wisdom or in our own cleverness or in our own strength, but we come before you begging for the help of your Holy Spirit to be with us, to open the eyes of our hearts that we might see wonderful things, to present before our eyes a picture of the beauty of Christ seated on the throne in the heavenly city, being our God, wiping away every tear from our eyes, making all things new, presenting us to himself a glorious bride, prepared by the death of Christ to be spotless and without blame, that we might live with him, that we might be his people, and that he might be our God. Father, make this reality true for us. Bring us comfort from it. Bring us encouragement from it. Bring us joy from it this Christmas. For it's in the name of Jesus we ask. Amen. Please be seated. Well, children, who here is excited about Christmas this week? Anyone? Anyone? Yes, I too am excited about Christmas this week. I, I still get excited about Christmas. I've always loved Christmas. It's a fun holiday. I, I'm getting a little bit older now. I, you know, I'm, I'm 36 years old now, which is pretty firmly entrenched in adulthood. And so Christmas is a little bit different for me now, but I still look forward to Christmas. There, there's just so much joy on Christmas Day, and it's not just the day itself, but the anticipation of that joy and the eager longing for that joy is almost just as good. I remember one Sunday when I was, uh, not Sunday, one Christmas rather, when I was a child, uh, my brother and I, as we always did on Christmas, had woken up very early, and our parents were not awake yet. And, and there was a certain time, a cutoff time, when we couldn't wake them up before that time on Christmas. And so what we did instead is we were looking through the newspaper and we found where they had printed the lyrics to a bunch of Christmas carols. And so we sat in the hallway and sang Christmas carols at the top of our voices, hoping that our siren song would draw them out of bed with the same eager expectation for Christmas that we had. Of course, as we grew up, we, we developed various traditions in our house. Uh, that sort of accumulated around Christmas time. Uh, one of my favorites, we, I don't know exactly how this started, but we would always go to a Christmas Eve service on Christmas Eve, a candlelight service at our church. And on the way home, every year my mom would ask to, to go drive by some Christmas lights and just enjoy looking at the lights. And, 
And I don't exactly remember why, but my dad never wanted to. And so we'd always just go home. <laughs> and so eventually this became the tradition. We, we celebrated every year the traditional not looking at of the Christmas lights. And, and when we had grandkids who finally joined the family, we decided we broke that tradition. And it was a bit sad. We actually looked at Christmas lights for the sake of the grandkids. Um, we did that, and then and Christmas morning, my mom would always attempt some fancy new breakfast casserole to make Christmas breakfast special for us. And uh, my mom sometimes listens to these sermons online. We love you, Mom. Uh, but she'd always make these fancy casseroles, and there was always a bread component. And anytime there's a bread component in casserole, it gets soggy. And, and so we always had our traditional soggy bread casserole on Christmas morning. And, and we, just, we came to expect that, and we came to look forward to enjoying the soggy bread that we would eat for breakfast. And it made it Christmas at our house. That was what Christmas was. But of course, as a kid, there's, there's the presents, there's the toys, there's the playing with them. And, and Christmas was, was such a great day. I, I just remember thinking as a kid that, that Christmas was the perfect day. Christmas was, it was all joy and anticipation and expectation and longing. And, and there was just nothing bad that happened on Christmas Day. I think the worst part of the day for me usually was, sun, was, was Christmas night. I, I would almost be sad Christmas night because there was 365 days before Christmas came again. That was the longest period of time of the whole year before Christmas would come again. But other than that, Christmas was the perfect day and we always enjoyed it. And, and as I think on that, I think that's what Christmas should be because Christmas is all about Jesus. And the promises that we have in these chapters at the end of Revelation is of a time, you know, it's almost like Christmas. It's pure joy. It's all about Jesus. God is there. There's no crying. There's nothing sad. There's nothing accursed in that new heavens and new earth. And that's what Christmas is. There's that great line in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe where, where they describe what Narnia is like under the reign of the White Witch. You remember he says it's, it's always winter and never Christmas. What worse fate than to have always winter but never Christmas? And heaven is almost going to be the opposite of that, always Christmas, because it's always experiencing the joy of being in the presence of Christ. It's always experiencing the reality of Emmanuel, God with us, not only with us as a baby at Christmas time, but with us in glory on his throne forever. And that's what we see in this description that, that John gives us, the Spirit gives us through John, of the place that Jesus is preparing for his people in Revelation 21 and 22. And I want to point out two things that will be true in that day. Two things that will describe and define the new heavens and the new earth. This is what the text says. It's a place where there will be no more curse, but only Christ. No more curse, only Christ will be there. First, heaven's going to be a place where there is no more curse, Look at chapter 22, verse 3. Chapter 22, verse 3. In the middle of this description of the glory that is coming, there's this line that's almost easy to read over quickly. It says, No longer will there be anything accursed. Or if you use a different translation, maybe the NIV, it says, No longer will there be any curse. Nothing cursed, nothing, no curse at all will remain in the new heavens and the new earth. And if, if you're not real familiar with the story of the Bible, it would be easy to read over this line and to think that this is kind of a throwaway line, no big deal. It's just one more phrase to try to describe the, the joy of heaven. But the reality is that, that this is one of the most sweeping descriptions of heaven. 
this tells us so much of what that new heaven and new earth is going to be like. It's one of the most all-encompassing statements in the whole Bible to say that at that time there will be no more curse. It's, it's so comprehensive in its scope that if the Bible ended without that sentence in it, it would almost be unsatisfying. If you know the story, if you've read from beginning to end and you got to the end and that line wasn't there, you'd almost wonder, wait, wait there's still loose ends that haven't been wrapped up yet. There's still something more that needs to happen. It'd be like a, a melody ending without resolving properly. There would be something left open. It wouldn't be a satisfying resolution to the story without this line. And here's what I mean. What we see in chapter 22 in these five verses we read is he's continuing the description of the new earth and the new heavens. And, and he describes it evoking images from Genesis chapter 1 and 2. You might have heard he's taking us back to the Garden of Eden, to the original paradise that God created for Adam and Eve to live in. He, he says that here at the end in, in Revelation chapter 22, he says this city that God is creating is going to have a river of the water of life that comes from the throne of God and from the throne of the Lamb, which takes us back to the Garden of Eden, which had a river that flowed out from the garden that watered all the earth. Moreover, it says in the middle of the street there's going to be what? The, the tree of life. The tree of life is going to be there again in the new heavens and the new earth. That, that takes us back again to the Garden of Eden where the tree of life was that God had planted in the midst of the garden. And so there's these bookends that, that Revelation is creating for us that in the beginning God had created the heavens and the earth and it was good. He pronounced all of it to be good and he said it's very good at the end and there's a river, and there's a tree, and it's this garden paradise where God walks with man in the cool of the day, and they enjoy the relationship and the communion that they have with one another. And now as we get to this other bookend, the very end of the Bible, it's the same description. He said he's remaking the heavens and the earth. It's a story that goes from creation to new creation, and this new creation, it looks like the old one. There's a river, the water of life, that he gives to us to drink from. There's the tree of life, whose leaves are for the healing of the nations, and God is there. And we enjoy communion with God, walking with him in the cool of the day, just like the original creation had. And so there's these nice bookends. This brings the story full circle. God is recreating paradise for us. And it's in this context that he says, also, there's no more curse. Because we know how that story goes in the beginning. It's, yes, it's paradise, it's perfect in the Garden of Eden, but it doesn't last. Because Adam and Eve sin against God in their rebellion. They take the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what happens? They get expelled from the garden so that they have no more access to the tree of life. And God pronounces a curse. As he's evicting them from the garden of Eden, he pronounces a curse on them. He says the woman is going to experience pain in childbirth. He says the man's work is going to be frustrating for him. Going to, the ground is going to produce thorns and thistles. And for them in an agrarian society, that meant frustrating work. That means, means the work that we do in our vocations is not going to easily produce the results that we seek. It's going to be frustrating to us. And so with sin and rebellion comes a curse on all of creation. All of creation now exists from Genesis 3 onward. It exists in the state of, of cursedness by God. It's under his curse for sin and rebellion and that one event there in Genesis chapter 3, the curse that God pronounces that holds so much power for us to explain 
the world as it is today, doesn't it? There's so much explanatory power in that one phrase to say that, that what kind of world do we live in? We live in a fallen world. A fallen world that's dominated by sin and rebellion and is therefore still continuing under God's curse. We live in a fallen world. When our work is not frustrating to us, Paul says in Romans 8, the whole creation is longing for the redemption from this curse. It's in bondage to corruption. That's why we can have and experience things like earthquakes, hurricanes, tornadoes, tsunamis. Disasters are part of the fact that we live in a fallen world. It also explains the fact that the world is, continues to be filled with sin and rebellion. This is why we live in a world that's still filled with school shootings and still has sex trafficking and domestic violence and abortion. All of these things, all the, the sin and, the, and the, the violence around us is just because we live in a fallen world. It's also how we explain the sin in our own hearts. It's how we can explain the fact that, that I continue to, to lose my temper, that I'm impatient with my family, that, that I struggle with pride. Whatever temptations we have, it's, it's why we have road rage in our world today. It's not just a problem because of big interstates, it's because of the fall and the curse. It's why our hearts are prone to wander. It's why we get angry when people inconvenience us. It's why we hurt one another in our hurt and why there's tears and we cry. It's why even within churches, we still continue to hurt one another. All of this, we look around and we say, gosh, what kind of world is this that we live in that, that all of this exists? And, and we say, well, it's a fallen world. It's a world that was once good in, when God had created it. In the beginning, God himself pronounced it good. But, but now it's a world that's filled with sin and rebellion and the curse of God. It's why our bodies don't work the way we would like them to work. It's why they break down faster than we would like them to break down. It's because we live in a world that's under the curse. Sometimes we're tempted to, to sort of live in resignation of this and we say, well, that's, that's just life. That's how the world is. But, but more accurately, we should say, no, that's not life. It's life in a fallen world. It's not the way God created life. God created it good, but now it's fallen. If you, if you remember the uh, Chronicles of Narnia, from if, now if you've read the books, sometimes they come in a different order, but in the movies, there's this interesting contrast. Because you remember the way The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe ends. That movie ends with this great coronation scene at Care Paravel. The, the big castle is there, and it's the coronation scene where Edmund and Peter and Susan and Lucy are being crowned as the kings and queens of Narnia. And it's this grand palatial palace where, with thrones, and they reign, and there's a river that goes out from it. And it's this beautiful scene. We could call it a scene of, of garden perfection for them. But the second movie is Prince Caspian, and how does that movie begin? Well, there's all the, the kids in the train station and they get sort of violently swept away back to Narnia and they're on a beach and they're exploring this island that they find themselves on. And you remember, they start looking around and they find ruins. And they're a little perplexed. They say, well, there were no ruins in Narnia. And, but eventually they catch on and they say, wait, here's, here's this wall right here and this is where pillars used to be. And there was, there was a, a banqueting hall over here and here's a door that goes down to the dungeon and they recognize where they are and they say, wait, these are the ruins of Care Paravel. And they realize that in Narnia time, it's something like 1,300 years after they were there previously. And what once was this great palace where they were kings and queens has now become 
ruins and it's grown over with weeds and everything is broken down. And that's a great description that takes us from Genesis 1 and 2 through to Genesis 3 and the rest of the Bible. In fact, one of my seminary professors used to uh, describe the world and humans in it. He'd say, we are glorious ruins. You look around and the world is glorious ruins. He said it's glorious because it's God's good creation. And even in human beings, the, the image of God is still here. And so we say there's glory in that. But at the same time, we're ruins. Ruined by sin, lost in the fall. So, yes, it's glorious, but now it's completely broken down and destroyed and falling apart. But still recognizable when you look around for what it once was. But Revelation 22 says, no longer is there any curse. No longer will there be any ruins in Narnia. No longer will we be glorious ruins. It will be pure glory through and through. No longer will there be any curse. The victory of Jesus, we could say it this way, is not just that he redeems our souls and will one day now snatch us out of this sinful world, but that he is redeeming all of creation and everything in it. And he is bringing it to this point at the end of the story where all things are made new. And the garden paradise is now restored and expanded, and it's where we will live again with God on that last day. This is why we sing Joy to the World. Think of the third verse that we're going to sing in a few moments. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. This is why at Christmas time we can rejoice that there won't be thorns someday. No more let thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found, Jesus is redeeming the world. There's a great quote from C.S. Lewis. He says, uh, in Mere Christianity, now another of his works, he says, If we find in ourselves a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is we were made for another world. And, and isn't that so true that, we, yes, we were made for another world. We were made for a Genesis 1 and 2 world. That's what God created mankind for, to walk with him in the cool of the day, to enjoy his company we were made to live in the garden, not to live in the fallen ruins of this world. So when we find in ourselves these desires for peace, for love, for harmonious relationships that don't have friction, when we find a desire for fruitful vocational work where we're not only knowing the frustrations, but knowing success and fulfillment, when we have the desire for communion with God, we say, that's because we were created for those things. And that's what Jesus is going to bring about on that great day. That's what he is creating us to live with him for. When he makes the church his own at that wedding day, he'll take us to live in that world where we experience those things. One commentator says this, With the curse removed by Christ, the new creation will finally be what it was meant to be all along. The throne at the center of it all, and the people of God seeing him, serving him, sealed by him, and reigning with him an everlasting day. This is what God is creating when he says there's no more curse. And this is what it means in chapter 21, verse 1, when it says that the sea is no more. There will be no more sea in the new heavens and the new earth. Now that's disappointing to some people because we like the sea. We're a beach city here and we like to go to the seashore and to enjoy it. And if there's no more sea, that means there's no more beach, no more surfing, no more... Tuna tartar, if 
You're into that? But, but this is what it means, is, is that although in our experience the sea can often be a good thing, in the Bible it's a metaphor for chaos and disorder. In Genesis 1, before God begins his creative acts, it says, the world was formless and without, uh, it was void and formless and without shape, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And, and the waters are chaotic, and the waters is what God has to now speak order and direction and life into, because the sea is the symbol of chaos. Or later in Daniel, we could read Daniel 7, where it's the sea where these uh, beasts rise up out of to make war on the saints in the vision of Daniel in Daniel chapter 7. So that's what it means. It's saying the sea throughout the Bible is this place of fear. It's a place of anxiety for believers because it's chaos and it's a place that's not submitted to the rule of God. And he says that will be no more. Everything now will be perfectly ordered by God's creative word. There will be no more fear, no more anxiety, no more disorder. The same is true in 21.4 when he says it plainly for us, that God himself will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more. Neither will there be mourning nor crying nor pain for the former things have passed away. This is the promise of living in a world where there is no curse. A world where Jesus Christ has spread his redemptive blessings as far as the curse is found and no longer is anything cursed. And so this is what is not in the new heavens and the new earth. There is no more curse. What is there? There's Christ. No more curse, only Christ. I used to love the Far Side comics. Um, maybe some of you remember those. They, I don't see them much anymore. But there's one that stands out to me of this guy who was supposedly in heaven, and he was sitting on a cloud. And of course, he had wings, and he had a halo on his head. And in his little thought bubble, it said, Gosh, wish I'd brought a magazine. And it, I wonder sometimes if that's what our vision of heaven is sort of like, that we don't really know what that's going to be like. I mean, eternal worship, okay, that could be a little boring. We don't know what to expect. But, but this is the picture in Revelation 21, that it's, it's not boring, that Christ is there. Christ is there. As David says in the Psalms, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. But the only thing he desires is Christ. The first thing the Bible wants us to know about heaven is this. Christ is there. That's the greatest thing we can possibly know about heaven is is that Christ will be there. Look at 21.3. John is seeing this for the first time, this new heaven and new earth. And he hears a voice now narrating what he's seeing from the throne. And this is the first thing that he hears. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. That's the first thing to know about heaven, is that God is there, and he makes his dwelling with man. This is the great promise, this, this promise we hear that, that we will be his people and he will be our God. We hear that promise throughout the Old Testament. That was their longing, to get to that day when that would be a perfect, restored relationship. Fourteen times we see that in the Old Testament, that very promise that is coming to completion in chapter 21. Not just that God is God, but that he is our God. We will be his people. That, that relationship that we have will be complete, it will be finalized. That he is for us. He's on our side and we will be his people. This, of course, is what we celebrate at Christmas time. We sing Emmanuel, God with us. 
And we think of Christ coming at, at Christmas time. We think of the manger. We think, yes, God came to us in Christ, humbling himself to be born in Bethlehem. But the reality is that's, that's only the beginning of the fulfillment of the promise of God with us. That, that's only, it, it's a fulfillment, but it's also another promise that there is a day coming when he will be finally and fully and eternally with us, not in a manger, but in glory, not in humility, but now on his throne, where God with us will take on a whole new meaning, not that Mary and Joseph will be caring for little baby Jesus, but that Jesus will be caring for us that he will be there wiping every tear from our eyes, making everything sad come untrue, that there will be now an intimacy and an access to our relationship with Christ that surpasses everything we've ever known. This is what it means to have this relationship with God, that there's intimacy, that there's access, that, that, that he's available to us, that he loves us, and we're, we're in his very presence. One of the hardest things for us we just moved here from California this, or from South Carolina to California this last summer. And, and I think one of the hardest things has been leaving behind Aubrey's family, who are all still back in South Carolina, which has been particularly rough on, on our kids. Um, Judah is three years old, and, and he used to so love spending time with his nana and his papa. And, and now he doesn't get to see them as much. They've visited twice out here. Um, but instead, what we do is we get to Skype with them. By the wonder of technology, we still get to see their face. And, and you should see Judah sometime when we get Nana on the Skype and her face appears on the computer. He, he just loses it. He just starts dancing around the room and he's trying to pick up all his toys and hold them in front of the computer. He doesn't really even know where the camera is, but he holds them up to her face so she can see his new toys that he's gotten. And, and just to catch these little glimpses of her face that he can see and to hear the sound of her voice, he, he just thrills over that. And it's so exciting, but... As great as that is, that he can Skype with his Nana, that's not what he really wants, is it? He wants to sit on her lap. He wants to sit on the porch swing with her and, and have her read him books and see her face and hear her voice and, and snuggle up with her and help her make biscuits in the morning. He wants that, that intimacy and that access to his Nana and to enjoy the full presence of being with her, which, praise God, we get to enjoy that tomorrow night. Lord willing, the plane goes well. But this is what it is. Look at 22, verse 3 and 4. No longer will there be any curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. Listen to this. They will see his face. They will see his face. I think in, in our technology-saturated world, in our image-saturated world, we don't hear that like they heard it in the first century. They had no Skype. They had no computers. They didn't have printing press. Uh, Mass-produced pictures did not exist. We, we recognize that people who would have heard this the first time, they lived in a world where you very rarely saw people's face. If you didn't live in the same town as them, you never saw their face. These were people who probably had never seen their king. They had probably never seen their governor. They had no idea what he looked like. They could pass them in the market and not even know because there was no news channels. We take for granted that we see people's faces all the time, but to them he says, you will see Christ, you will be with him, and you will see his face. The ESV study Bible says, this will be the greatest blessing of the age to come. Think on this for a minute. This will be the greatest blessing of the age to come. 
that we will see his face. The greatest blessing of being in heaven is not going to be perfectly restored health. It's not going to be getting to spend time with all of our long-lost relatives who have gone before us into heaven. It's not going to be finally getting to ask Elijah that question that's always been bugging you. The greatest blessing of the age to come, we will see Christ's face. Jesus will be there. He will be our God. We will be his people. This, throughout the Bible, has been one of the highest desires of all of the people of God. Think of Psalm 24. David cries out, One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. That was his prayer. The one thing he sought was to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. It's how the Lord taught Aaron the priest how to bless the people. What was he supposed to say to them? He was supposed to say, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. We know Moses desired to see the face of God and he could not. Cyprian, a pastor in the third century, said, How great will your glory and happiness be to be allowed to see God, to be honored with sharing the joy of salvation. One of my favorites outside the Bible is is in Pilgrim's Progress. What Christian, the, the main character, says when he gets to the end of his journey, and of course it's picturing him making this journey towards heaven, and he has to cross the River Jordan to get into heaven. And, and this is how it describes it. He says, This river, of course this river represents death for him to get into heaven. It says, This river has been a terror to many. Yea, and the thoughts of it have also frightened me. But now methinks I stand easy. My foot is fixed upon that upon which the feet of the priests that bore the Ark of the Covenant stood while Israel went over this Jordan. The waters indeed are to the palate bitter and to the stomach cold. Yet the thoughts of what I am going to and the conduct that waits for me lies as a glowing coal at my heart. I see myself now at the end of my journey. My toilsome days are ended. I am going now to see the head that was crowned with thorns and to see the face that was spit upon for me. Formerly, I have lived by hearsay and by faith, but now I go where I shall live by sight and shall be with him in whose company I delight myself. I have loved to hear my Lord spoken of, and wherever I have seen the print of his shoe in the earth, there I have coveted to set my foot also. His name has been to me sweeter than all perfumes. His voice to me has been the most sweet, and his countenance I have more desired than they that have most desired the light of the sun. His word I did use to gather for my food and for antidotes against my faintings. Yea, my steps he has strengthened in his way. The thing that he most desires to see as he comes to the end of his life is, is that he's now going to look on the face of Christ, that face that was spit upon for him. This is the highest honor, the highest privilege, the greatest blessing of the age to come is this, that we will look on the face of Jesus. There will be an intimacy and an access there to enjoy his presence. This is worth celebrating at Christmas time. Now, let me just make the connection here for you. We've been saying there's two things that describe heaven for us. There's not going to be any more curse, but we're only going to enjoy the presence of Christ. And and I don't want you to go away thinking that, that all I've done is sort of make this kind of pleasant description. Ah, 
Everything is going to be great. Oh, and the cherry on top is that we'll get to see God and that he'll be there as well. Because it's deeper than that in the scriptures. There's more joy in it than that in the scriptures. Uh, there's more love and more glory for us. And, and if we just see it as somewhere sort of ideal that, that God takes us all pie in the sky by and by, then, then we miss the point. Because there's a vital connection between these two things, that, that Christ has removed the curse and that we now get to enjoy his presence. Because we think of this vision of God. Men longed for it all through the scriptures, and yet they didn't see it. Why was it that Moses asked God, I want to see your face, and yet God said no? He said, no man can see my face and live. He said, I'll, I'll put you in this cleft in the rock as I go by, and you can see my back, but no man can see my face. It's because God is holy, perfectly holy, perfectly just, perfectly righteous, and in uh, the prophets, it says, you are too holy to look on sin. Sin cannot even be in his presence. His holiness would have destroyed it. And, and so for Moses and for us as sinful people, we can't be in God's presence. We can't see his face because we live in a fallen, sinful, rebellious, rebellious world. We live in a world that's under God's curse. And so before it can be true that, that we will look on Christ and we will see his face, it's necessary first that Christ takes the curse away. The curse had to be removed. It had to be dealt with. And how does God remove the curse that's the result of sin? Well, the Bible tells us in Galatians 3 that Christ removed the curse by becoming a curse for us. Because he died on the cross for our sins, it says he became the curse. He drew onto himself all of our sin, all of our rebellion, all of our failings, all of the curse that was due to us. He simply draws it onto himself and he takes the punishment for us. He stood in our place and took what we deserved so that we can stand in his place and be free from it. He took our condemnation that we might stand in his place of glory with him. In other words, we never get to see this heavenly vision of the face of Christ in glory unless we first look on the face of Christ on the cross. In his humility, in his work for us. Because the text tells us, even in Revelation, it says there's, there's people who aren't going to be there. There's people who aren't going to be there. Those who remain defined by their sin. They don't get to enjoy this. It's only those who have believed in Christ, who have looked on him in faith. And for those who do see Jesus, the sight's going to be that much sweeter, that much more glorious for us because we will, in fact, be gazing on the face that was spit upon for us, that will bear the scars from the crown of thorns that sat on that head for us, and we will love him who loved us even unto death. He will be our Emmanuel, our God with us, God who came to us, for us, died in our place that we might live with him. So I'd encourage you this Christmas, either Christmas Eve or, or Christmas morning, whenever you have your celebration together with your family as you, you're there to celebrate, I'd encourage you to read, you know, read the Christmas story from Luke 1 and 2. Then read these chapters. Read Revelation 21 and 22. It, it's a fitting fulfillment of the Christmas story that he who once came to be with us in humility now draws us to himself in his glory. That he is God with us. He is Emmanuel. 
And if you're really bold as a family, follow that up by singing. Come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you and give you thanks, for you are good. You are gracious and you are merciful. You have sent Christ to be our Savior and our Lord, to love us. And Lord, we look in great longing, great expectation of the blessings that await us in heaven. And we join our voices with those of John and all those throughout the ages. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen.